You know, when we reflect on the story of the crucifixion on Good Friday or through the Easter weekend, we often think about the physical anguish. And that's a real thing. But we can't comprehend what it means for Him to become sin for us. For Him to become repugnant to the Father who said at the beginning of His ministry and and one other time at least throughout, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And yet Jesus said on the cross, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And why did he forsake him? So that he could say to us today, I will never leave you, nor forsake you. Well, I don't know about you, but I know that I appreciate a good mystery. And when you are studying a mystery or enjoying a mystery, you ask primarily four questions. Who, what, when, and where. And you might even throw in how. But this year for Christmas, I have the privilege of being here uh, today, and then in two weeks on Christmas Eve, I will return. So I am starting a two-part message called Four Questions of Christmas. So if you're taking notes, I have four questions of Christmas coming, two of them today and two of them on Christmas Eve. So the first question uh, that I have to ask is to whom did Jesus come? And we will answer that question as soon as I open in a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, I am so thankful to be here. Thank you for being the restorer of health and for allowing me to be here today. Lord, I take this opportunity to pray for my mother. I pray that you would restore health to her body um, in time for the holidays so that she can enjoy those in in full health. Lord, I pray for anyone else who may be struggling with health. Lord, we know that you are the great physician and we trust you to do work only you can do. And we thank you for the promise of Christmas that God became flesh and dwelt among us. And today we welcome you here in a special way Please minister to us and help us to glean wondrous truths from your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So, today, I, as I said, I want to ask two questions. And the first one is, to whom did Jesus come? And I have four answers to this question. We're going to be kind of all over the scriptures today. So, I hope that your page-turning fingers are limber, and we're going to start in Luke chapter 1 for the first answer to this question. Luke 1, and that is Mary. So if you turn to Luke chapter 1, verse 26 through 38, you read, 
And in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God unto a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin espoused to a man whose name was Joseph, who was of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And the angel came in unto her and said, Hail, thou art highly favored, the Lord is with thee, blessed art thou among women. And when she saw him, she was troubled at his saying, and cast in her mind what manner of salutation this should be. And the angel said unto her, Fear not, Mary, for thou hast found favor with God. And behold, thou shalt conceive in thy womb, and bring forth a son, and shall call his name Jesus. He shall be great, and shall be called the Son of the Highest. And the Lord shall give unto him the throne of his father David, and he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there shall be no end. Then said Mary unto the angel, How shall this be, seeing I know not a man? And the angel answered and said unto her, The Holy Ghost shall come upon thee, and the power of the highest shall overshadow thee. Therefore also that holy thing which shall be born of thee shall be called the Son of God. And behold thy cousin Elizabeth, she has also conceived a son in her old age, and this is the sixth month with her, who was called barren. For with God nothing shall be impossible. And Mary said, Behold the handmaid of the Lord, be it unto me according to thy word. And the angel departed from her. So the first person that Jesus came to was Mary. He came by the power of the Holy Spirit into her womb. Notice that the scripture says you are highly favored among women, not that you are holy, not that you are perfect, but that you are favored. As a matter of fact, if we read on in the passage, we get to Mary's Magnificat, where she, where he, where she says, My soul rejoices in God my Savior, for he has regarded what? The lowly estate of his handmaiden. So Mary's whole approach was an approach of humility. And I love the fact that God did not choose who the world would choose. He did not choose to have Jesus born in a palace. He did not choose to have Jesus born among the elites of society. Although it's kind of interesting to note that when Paul wrote in the Corinthians that though he was rich yet for our sakes he became poor, the very act of becoming human was becoming poor. Even if he was with the richest person on earth, he would still be poor compared to the riches of heaven. But God did not choose a rich couple to bless with Jesus. He chose rather Joseph and Mary, a humble couple, and someone who was a virgin, someone who um, believed that God was worth serving and was humble in his presence, and yet she was chosen as a highly favored one to be the mother of the Son of God. There's a, a classic song, it's considered a classic now, called Mary Did You Know, where Mark Lowry um, was contemplating 
Mary and thinking about this child that she was going to have. And he, he said, Mary, did you know that this child you delivered would soon deliver you? And I think it's very poignant to consider that this young lady just that morning was someone relatively unknown. Everything was pretty normal about her life from all we can deduce. And then an angel comes and changes everything. And I love what the angel said in Luke one thirty-seven: For with God, nothing shall be impossible. I heard a preacher say many years ago, and I've never forgotten it. He said, God will often give you a task and make it impossible for you to do it so that when he does it through you, he gets the glory. He told Abraham, you're going to be the father of many nations. All nations will be blessed by your descendants. And then he made Sarah barren. But he kept coming back to Abraham and he said, I'm going to make you a great nation. Don't worry. And Abraham said, well, does that mean Eliezer? He's going to be my heir. He's my chief servant. I love him like a son. Is he the one? And God said, no. Your son is going to come from your loins. And then he visited Sarah and Abraham. And he said, this time next year, you will have a son. And Sarah laughed in the tent and the pre-incarnate Christ said, why did Sarah laugh in the tent? And she said, I did not laugh. And he knowing all said, but you did laugh. But Isaac came just as God said. And Isaac means laughter. And so it's just interesting to see how the God who kept that promise continues through the scriptures to keep his promise. And I think partially by way of showing us that God is no respecter of persons and that every person from every walk of life needs him, that brings us to the second person to whom Jesus came that I want to highlight today. And that is to the wise men. Matthew 2 Verses 1 to 11. Matthew 2, 1 to 11. Now when Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, there came wise men from the east to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he that is born the king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king had heard these things, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And when he had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he demanded of them where Christ should be born. And they said unto him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet, And in Bethlehem, and thou Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not the least among the princes of Judah, for out of thee shall come a governor that shall rule my people Israel. Then Herod, when he had privily called the wise men, inquired of them diligently what time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search diligently for the young child. And when ye have found him, bring me word again, 
that I may come and worship him also. When they had heard the king, they departed, and lo, the star which they saw in the east went before them, and it came and stood over where the young child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceeding great joy, and when they were come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary his mother, and fell down and worshipped him. And when they opened their treasures, they presented him with gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And of course, if you read on, you find out that they were warned of God in a dream to go back another way and to not confirm his location to King Herod. We don't understand how these wise men came to know that there would be a king born in Jerusalem or a king that they should come to see in Jerusalem. What we do know is that Jesus said, no man comes unto me except the Father draws him. So in whatever way and in however he chose to do it, God showed the wise men his glory and said, come and seek the king. And as Max Lucado wrote in one of his books, wise men still seek him. I pray that you are seeking him today and I pray that my determination to seek the Lord Jesus would continue to grow. Going back to the book of Luke, we see that he also came to a group of shepherds. In the book of Luke, chapter 2, we read this famous passage. It was made very famous by um, the Charlie Brown Christmas special which debuted in the 50s and was on network TV until just a couple years ago when Apple, of all companies, acquired the rights and put it on their streaming service. They still do allow people to watch it free every year, whether they have a subscription or not, which is good. But one interesting fact about that Christmas special is that Charles Schultz was a believer in the Lord Jesus. And he wanted to put the true meaning of Christmas into the Charlie Brown Christmas special. And people at the network were like, we really don't want to do this. And he's like, well, if you're not going to do this, then you're not going to produce a Charlie Brown Christmas. And so he was able to use his influence and the fact that he owned the characters to persuade them to include the true meaning of Christmas in that Christmas special. And every time I watch it, I'm gratified to know that he used his influence as a a well-known and popular cartoonist to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. In Luke chapter 2, verse 8, we read, And there were in the same country shepherds abiding in the field, 
keeping watch over their flock by night. And lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were sore afraid. And the angel said unto them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And this shall be a sign unto you. You shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, laying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill to men. And it came to pass, when they were gone away from them into heaven, the shepherds said unto one another, Let us go even unto Bethlehem, and see this thing which has come to pass, which the Lord has made known unto us. And I'm just going to read a few more verses. It says, And they came with haste, and found Mary and Joseph, and the babe laying in the manger. And when they had seen it, they made known abroad the saying which was told them concerning the child. And all they that heard it wondered at these things which were told them by the shepherds. So we see again, God is covering all spectrums of humanity. When you think about who would be the first to receive an announcement like this, how high up on the list would shepherds be to you? And yet God in his providence said, these shepherds are the ones that I want to share my message. And then what did the shepherds do? They were so filled with joy that they went and found things exactly as God had said. Again, God, the promise-keeping God, they found things exactly as God had said. And then what do they do? They go out and proclaim the good news to others. They couldn't keep the joy of Christmas to themselves. Because Christmas is the greatest news in the world. In the great hymn, I Heard the Bells, on Christmas Day, Henry Wadsworth Longfellow said, God is not dead. Nor does he sleep. He wrote it at the height of the Civil War when life, no doubt, was falling apart around him. He had lost his wife, his second wife, actually, in a tragic accident when she was burned to death because a candle caught her dress on fire and he tried to save her life, but he was unsuccessful. His son had been injured in the war after he told him not to go. And yet he was able to say, in the midst of that tragedy and that pain, God is not dead. And isn't it wonderful that we can say, Jesus Christ is risen. I'm so grateful to have that hope today. So we've seen 
that Jesus came to Mary. We've seen that Jesus came to the wise men. We've seen that Jesus came to the shepherds. But you want to know what's most exciting to me is that Jesus came to us. John chapter 3, John chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. Of course, many of us could quote these, but I still feel the need to read it because I don't want to misquote it. John 3, 16 and 17 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. You know, much of the world thinks when we share the gospel that we are trying to condemn them, that we are trying to belittle them, that we are trying to bring them down from where they are. But the reality is we are trying to pull them up. We are trying to help them get out of the miry clay. To set their feet on a rock because they are already condemned. They don't have to do anything to be condemned. They have to choose life so that they can live. They have to believe on him so they will not be condemned. Because if they do not believe, they are condemned already. And then Titus 2. Titus 2, 11 to 14 says, For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. So Jesus came into the world for you and me. Paul said it this way, Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. The Bible says that we were chosen before the foundations of the world, which means that when Jesus came to be born as a baby, he was thinking of you and me. That is an amazing thought for me to contemplate, that he was thinking of you and me. All right, well, that brings me to the second question of the day. The second question that I want to ask about Christmas. And that is, what did Jesus bring when he came? What did Jesus bring when he came? The first thing that Jesus brought when he came is hope. Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. And I have verse 5 listed but I think I'm going to read the first five verses of Romans chapter 5 to give us some context. 
Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom also we have access by faith into this grace wherein we stand, and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And not only so, but we glory in tribulations, knowing and not only so, but we glory in tribulations also, knowing that tribulation work of patience, and patience experience, and experience hope. And hope maketh not ashamed, because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost, which is given unto us. So we are justified by faith. And that gives us hope. We rest in the hope of the glory of God. And hope maketh not a shame. We've talked about before the difference between the modern understanding of hope, which is, I hope that I get that that special thing that I wanted for Christmas this year. I hope somebody buys it. And the hope that we have in Christ, which is a guarantee. And we see in verse 5, And hope maketh not a shame. We've already seen how God has kept His promises. He told Isaiah hundreds of years before Jesus came that a virgin will conceive and bear a son. And that His name will be called Emmanuel, God with us kept that promise. He told Mary that the baby would come, that she would be overcome by the Holy Ghost, and that that the baby would come, that she would name him Jesus, and that he was going to take away the sin of the world. That promise was kept. He told the shepherds to find the babe lying in a manger, And they found him and they worshipped him. And he told the wise men to follow the star. The glory of God. And when the star settled on the house where Jesus was, they rejoiced because their journey was at an end. And they got off of their camels or whatever they were riding And they went in and saw Mary and her son Jesus and they fell down and worshipped him. See, everyone is changed when they encounter Jesus. I used to think some people aren't changed. But I, I believe now that everyone is changed when they encounter Jesus. Either you choose to follow him wholeheartedly and you're drawn by cords of love Or you harden yourself and you drift even farther. But you can't help but be changed by the power of Jesus. And so we see that because Jesus is a promise-keeping God, the son of the promise-keeping God, the fullness of the Godhead bodily, that he gives us hope. The second thing that he came to bring us was peace. The second thing that he came to bring us was peace. Ephesians 
2, 13 to 15. Ephesians 2, 13 to 15 reads, But now in Christ Jesus, ye who sometimes were far off are made nigh by the blood of Christ. For he is our peace, who hath made both one, and hath broken down the middle wall of partition between us having abolished in his flesh the enmity, even the law of commandments contained in ordinances, for to make in himself of twain one new man, so making peace. You know, we live in a world today, in a nation today, that claims to want peace. But they're looking everywhere except one place, and that's the person and work of Jesus Christ. There's an old saying that says that if you know Jesus, you know peace. But if you have no Jesus in your life, you will have no peace. So that's the choice that you and I have. To know Jesus and have peace or to not know Jesus and not have peace. The third thing Jesus brought for us when he came to this earth. Remember, he was born in a manger, but he was born to die. When he came to Jerusalem and it was time to sacrifice for us, we read that he set his face as a flint. He wouldn't be dissuaded, even though Peter, seemingly out of love, said, Far be it from you, Lord, to perish for us. He said to Peter the words, Get thee behind me, Satan. Because he was focused. In Hebrews it says, For the joy that was set before him, he endured the pain, despising the shame. Because he knew that he was going to deliver redemption to us. In 2 Corinthians 5.21, 2 Corinthians 5.21 This has become one of my favorite verses over the years. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says this, For he hath made him to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. He became sin for us. You know, when we reflect on the story of the crucifixion on Good Friday or through the Easter weekend, we often think about the physical anguish, and that's a real thing. But we can't comprehend what it means for him to become sin for us. For him to become repugnant to the Father who said at the beginning of his ministry and and one other time at least throughout This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And yet Jesus said on the cross, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And why did he forsake him? So that he could say to us today, I will never leave you. 
nor forsake you. That is the power and the promise of the cross that He will never leave us nor forsake. The final thing that I want to highlight that He brought with Him when He came is in John chapter 14, verses 1 to 3. John 14, 1 to 3. This is a special passage to me um, because it's one of the first scripture passages that I remember memorizing. My grandmother wanted me to begin memorizing scripture and she challenged me to memorize this um, one afternoon when she was babysitting us and she gave me a little bit of money afterwards. Um, because she wanted to encourage me. But this passage has never left my mind and my heart since that day. And it's John 14, 1-3. Let not your heart be troubled. Ye believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you, And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there ye may be also. What a wonderful promise that is. Jesus said to his disciples, you can't go with me now, but you will. And he knows that they're going to face some of the most challenging times of their life because he's about to go to the cross and die, and then rise again the third day. But even though they've been told this three times, we read in the Scriptures that they did not remember His words until after He had risen from the dead. And even though He told His disciples three times, I'm going to rise again the third day, when the women came to the upper room and told them that Jesus was alive, They thought they sounded like foolish women with incoherent babbling because they failed to believe what Jesus himself had said. But as we've seen over and over this morning, Jesus keeps his promises. And he has kept every promise that he has made, and he will keep the ones that he has to make in the future. Why was Joseph of the house and lineage of David? Why was that important? Because when David was on the earth, God had a conversation with him and said this, that your throne will be established forever. The throne of David will always be have someone on it. How is that possible? The only way that that's possible is if the occupier of that throne is eternal. And that's why Jesus is the son of David. Remember the blind man who desperately wanted to see. He said, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. 
And they told him to shut up. They told him to be quiet. And he said all the more, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus called him and he set aside his cloak, set aside the thing that would prevent him from getting there in a timely manner. And Jesus said, what would you have me to do for you? And he said, Lord, that I may receive my sight. And he said, receive your sight. And perhaps the most significant part of that story comes after that because it says that after he is healed, after he receives his sight, does he run back to his family and say, look, I received my sight. No, he follows Jesus down the road. See, when you and I were redeemed, the only possible response we could have is to follow the one who gave himself for us. As Paul said, the life I live, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. His own half-brothers, when they wrote their epistles, they understood their place, especially James, as a bondservant of the Lord Jesus. Because they knew that he was God and worthy of praise. My prayer for you today is that you would realize that Jesus came for you. That he left the glories of heaven for you. That he did that because it was the only way to redeem you. The only way to deliver you from wrath. You know, some people say that God is a God of love, so you shouldn't present Him as a God of wrath. But I'm reminded what Paul said, knowing the terror of God, we persuade men. And I often go back to that passage in the Chronicles of Narnia, where the beavers are talking to Peter, Susan, and Lucy about Aslan, who is the clear representation of Christ. And they find out that he's a lion. And they ask Mr. Beaver, is he safe? And Mr. Beaver says, he's a lion. Of course he isn't safe. But he is good. The Bible says it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of an angry God. But it also says that God commended his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. In the same chapter, it says, while we are yet without strength, in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. Why? Because He never shows up a minute late. He never shows up a minute early. He's always right on time. So I hope that you are resting in that promise today and that God will bless you this Christmas season with a renewed appreciation for the fact that the God of the universe Step in the time for our sake. And one day we will behold him in eternity. And I'm looking forward to that day.
I wonder if we might close by singing number 160 in the red book. Number 160, Thou didst leave thy throne. This is a great picture of what Jesus did for us when he decided to come for our redemption.